Hello, I'm Michael Lemmer, and welcome to the Pros and Pros Podcast, a podcast devoted to the exploration of great sports writing. Jane Levy, with her previous two biographies of Sandy Koufax and Mickey Mantle, has shown herself to be one of the best baseball writers working today, convincingly and insightfully separating the myth from the man. Now, in her latest book, she turns her eyes to the most mythologized figure in baseball history, Babe Ruth. The Big Fella, her new biography of the Babe, is a very good book that tries to find the man behind the legends, while also brilliantly looking at how he and his agent, Christy Walsh, essentially invented the idea of modern celebrity. I had a great time talking with Jane about this and much more, and without further ado, here's Jane Levy. Today I have with me Jane Levy, the author of a new biography of Babe Ruth, entitled The Big Fella. Babe Ruth and the world he created. Great to have you with me today, Jane. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to do it. <laughs> to, to begin, what led you to want to pursue writing a book on Babe Ruth? I didn't want to write a book on Babe Ruth. I didn't, at least I didn't want to write a nonfiction book on Babe Ruth for all the reasons um, that people mention when they hear I've done one, which <laughs> is to say, what could there possibly be new about the big fella? And my skepticism about doing it led me to spend a year before signing a contract uh, reading everything that had been written uh, about him and putatively by him, um, you know, to see whether I thought there was an opening, um, something new to say and perhaps a new way to say it. And what became clear really fast was that it was almost as if he emerged fully fledged at age 19 from the um, reform school where he spent most of his childhood with no explanation except a couple of paragraphs here and there uh, saying that he'd come from a very, very uh, poor Baltimore family and grew up terrorizing the waterfront and that his parents tearfully regretfully and mournfully placed him in the care of the Zaverian brothers who ran St. Mary's Industrial School. And something told me that, call it reportorial instinct, um, that when a whole section of a famous person's life is omitted, um, there's usually something that hasn't been said and usually a good reason why the person um, who lived those years didn't want it to be. Yeah, because near, near the beginning of the book, you say that in order to write about the babe, you had to find a way to let little George Ruth tell his own story. Why, why did you think that letting little George speak was so important? And, and what steps did you take to, to allow him to speak? Well, you know, so much of what was written, again, by him under his byline and about him um, was either heavily edited and censored uh, according to the omerta of the clubhouse that pertained when he played or uh, was just written by somebody else uh, because his agent, Christy Walsh, um, ran this fabulously successful uh, ghostwriting syndicate. And the voice you could hear in those pieces, um, you know, really was not his own and didn't sound like him whatsoever. Uh, the quotes that uh, are attributed to him, many of them, probably a good many are true, but whatever the reporters of the time knew, and they were pretty good reporters, um, they mostly didn't write because there was a strict adherence to um, the line drawn in the sand between what was considered public and private. 
So if any of them knew what had really transpired in his childhood, they didn't say it. And what I needed was to find the little boy that his family called little George um, in order to understand how that person, the formative events um, of that life, how that translated into the larger-than-life persona he created as, as the world's most famous baseball player. Mm-hmm. And, and why do you think other biographers have sort of failed to focus on Ruth's early life, leading him to become sort of a spectral presence, you call him? Was it taking the earlier sources at their word or sort of a lack of information or just a prudence on their part? Well, I, again, I don't think Ruth had any interest in having the story told. And if he shared any of the particulars, he probably said, please don't write that, as he often did whenever he was most himself. And I don't think it was a failure on their part. I started out with the presumption that I was going to be at a great disadvantage because the same sources who were available for Bob Creamer and Marshall Smelser and Cal Wagenheim, um, to name a few, um, that they interviewed were no longer alive and no longer available to me. Um, But what I didn't expect, because I wasn't trained as a historian and hadn't really paid enough attention, I suppose, to how the world of uh, digital information has changed everything, what I didn't know is that there would be documents, uh, family documents and newspaper archives that they didn't have access to that I would. So that the distance, my distance in time from the subject and the events really wasn't the disqualifying problem that I thought it was. For Bob Creamer to have found, and he's a, he was a really good writer and, you know, his 74 biography, Babe, was, you know, very, very good. Just didn't tell the whole story of his life. And that's also partly because sports biographies, you know, uh, in general, had hewed to a very different standard than the biographies you find of Churchill or Lincoln or Roosevelt in the Library of Congress. They were more uh, biographies of a career than they were of a whole life. So uh, what happened specifically is um, I went in the summer of 2011 to interview uh, Ruth's daughter, his sole surviving and closest relative, uh, Julia Ruth Stevens, and she mentioned apropos of nothing that I can remember, that um, his parents, George Sr. and Katie Ruth, had been separated. My jaw dropped, and I said, what? (laughs) He said, oh, I just thought everybody knew. Well, nobody knew. Babe didn't want people to know. And then I went to one of his granddaughters, and I said, Julia says that they were separated. She says they weren't separated. They were divorced. Well, with that lead, All I had to do, which again, you know, my predecessors couldn't have done, was type into a a search engine, George Herman Ruth Sr. V, that was my big contribution, uh, V Katie Ruth, and up pops and, you know, the information that all the records exist at the Maryland State Archive. So I went to the Maryland State Archive and there found um, the entire divorce file of George and Katie, which told the story of a completely dysfunctional, um, tragic, and um, uh, harsh family life. Not harsh in the way that people thought it wasn't, they weren't, you know, 
destitute. Uh, George rent um, saloons all over the city, and he did, and he opened and closed them not because he was broke and, and couldn't figure out how to run them, but because he said in his depositions, his divorce deposition, because everywhere he went, his wife got too friendly with the bartenders. And what ultimately happened was that um, he caught her with one of his bartenders when they were living um, at uh, in, in 1906. And uh, was living in the bar, the bar above the bar, and the, the one that was in sort of center of the field at uh, Camden Yards now. And um, he uh, he had his wife and the bartender arrested. Um, there were police reports in this file. There were George's depositions. He accused her of being um, not just unfaithful, but being an alcoholic. And when he was awarded the divorce and custody of the then three surviving children of the marriage, it was news in the Baltimore Sun. But again, how would, absent the hint I got from Julia, um, you say they got that hint, how would anybody absent digitized information have gone through so many editions of the Baltimore Sun, you know, it would have been needle in a haystack to find that. Whereas today, all I had to do again was <laughs> press a mouse, you know, and and there there it appeared on my on the screen, and mm-hmm. so the documents supplied the voices um, of the the deceased children born to Katie and George. Um, they had one sister who survived into adulthood, who always maintained that. Uh, the parents had eight children. I could only find documentation for six of them. And of the six that I was able to find, four died in infancy, uh, two from malnutrition. Those were, that, that information was on their death certificates. So picture this. You're seven years old, and you think you're eight because your mother can't remember what year you were born. And even though they've lost all these children, they still choose to send Babe Ruth then known as Little George, off to this reform school um, to live under the care and suasion of the Zaverian brothers, a lay Catholic order that was devoted to educating and taking care of uh, wayward youth. Mm-hmm. Well, considering that they had six children, why was it Little George who was sent away to a reform school? Because I don't believe that his other siblings were, correct? No, they all died. No, uh, he was the oldest. Kate was um, two months pregnant when he and she and uh, married George Senior, um, and in uh, June uh, eighteen ninety four. He was born in February, uh, February uh, six eighteen ninety five. He always thought he was a year older until he got his passport um, in the thirties, um, and she kept having and bearing and losing children for the next several years, and then finally in. Uh, 19, on June 13th, 1902, um, they sent him off um, uh, away from what must have been a terribly um, sad and tumultuous and, you know, verging on violent uh, household. Uh, as Mamie, his uh, sister, the only surviving uh, other sibling, said, you know, daddy had a powerful mean hand. Mm-hmm. And and going back to the to the research and writing process, you, you, you note in the acknowledgments that this book took you eight years to research and write. 
what was the most difficult part of that process and what was it that kept you going throughout that long time? Well, what kept me going and that's the easy part. I'm nuts. Um, and <laughs> I'm terrier like, um, you know, about little pieces of information that be of no consequence to anybody else. Um, like that his feet, he couldn't stand to have his feet uh, tucked under the covers. So he just had to throw the covers off and have his feet exposed. Um, my guess is that that's probably because they had to sleep with their feet under the covers at St. Mary's. <laughs> but that's a that's an educated guess, not a certainty. Um, I I knew from the beginning that what I wanted to do was show what it was like to be Babe Ruth and what it was like to be around Babe Ruth at the apogee of his fame in the fall of 1927. And I made the decision to tell the story through the barnstorming tour organized by his agent, Christy Walsh, who really was the original Jerry Maguire, who paraded Ruth and young Lou Gehrig, who was then 24, but also the MVP that year, uh, because Ruth couldn't get it a second time, around the country from city to city to city, um, places where uh, no one had ever seen and probably most hadn't even heard on radio because radio was new, a Major League Baseball game. Um, and then I wanted to use that as a framework for contrasting what he had become from where, what, where he began and trying to understand the relationship between the two. In fact, I don't think you can understand where the, the big fellow who loved being subsumed by hordes of young boys unless you understand um, what it was like to live at St. Mary's in crowded dorms where boys slept head to toe in matching wrought iron cots uh, with just enough room between them uh, to get down on your hands and knees and pray. And uh, where they slept together, ate together, washed together, played baseball every day together. Um, so what he learned at St. Mary's was not just um, how to make a shirt, because that was going to be his other career as a tailor, and not just how to hit the ball, uh, hit the hell out of a ball or throw the hell out of a ball, but he learned to be public. That was what was normal for him. Mm -hmm. What was not normal for him and where he felt completely ill at ease was when he was alone. So he grows up to be this guy who needs, craves, wants, and is completely effortlessly um, at home in crowds, particularly crowds of young boys. There's none of the claustrophobia or annoyance that you see in modern celebrities. This completed him. Interesting. And and you mentioned uh, that you spoke to Ruth's last living um, daughter in your interview process, but considering that essentially all of his relatives and uh, contemporaries have since passed away, who did you try to seek out to interview? Well, his daughter, as I said, Julia, is alive. She's now 102. Um, his several grandchildren are alive. I spoke to three of his granddaughters. I also spoke to uh, one grandson and the relatives of those uh, living, surviving grandchildren. Um, and I was able to um, find people still alive who had met him or had seen him or had uh, been a bat boy for him during one of those uh, games on the barnstorming tour. Um, 
And it was like uh, putting together a gigantic mosaic with mm. each little piece of information or each little memory uh, fitting into a whole that I hoped would be coherent when I got done with it. Mm-hmm. And was there anything that was particularly surprising uh, that you discovered as you researched? Well, I think that what's surprising is that the mythology that grew up about him, um, and there are two utterly conflicting myths that people will look at you with a straight face and tell you today still are true, one being that he was an orphan, um, and the only reason people thought he was an orphan was because St. Mary's was believed erroneously to be an orphanage. They accepted some orphans, but that was not the predominant um, student body. And the other was that he was an incorrigible, which was a legal term um, used uh, at the time uh, to describe young boys who'd gotten in trouble with the law and who were ordered to St. Mary's, sentenced to St. Mary's because of, um, you know, illegal acts, whatever they may have been. That was equally untrue. But as I said, uh, in, in, Growing up in the early 1900s and becoming public in the 20s uh, the way he was, you know, there was no Diane Sawyer or Barbara Walters or 60 Minutes to go on and tell this wrenching story of a wretched Dickensian childhood. Nobody would have been sympathetic. You know, nobody would have given him a pass on anything. You know, today that would have been a gimme. Uh, Back then it was something that you would hide and not share. And it would be a cause of shame and embarrassment and, you know, hey, please don't write that, fellas. So Babe Ruth allowed those two completely inaccurate myths to flourish. He would every once in a while get mad and say, no, I had parents, but he never said anything more. Or, no, I wasn't a bad kid. You just ask the brothers, they'll tell you. Um, But he never went further than that. Mm -hmm. And so what, what I was able to do thanks to the documents and the grandchildren who uh, pieced in, you know, other parts of the story was fill in what it had really liked to be him as a little boy and the sense of utter abandonment um, and the inconsolable abandonment that um, he got over by being public and by being subsumed with public um, adoration. Mm-hmm. And, and we've touched upon this a bit with the with the talk about making little George speak for himself. But was there anything else that you thought had been left out of previous tellings of Ruth's life that you wanted to highlight or emphasize in your own work? Yeah, um, the other story that I think was really important, and it's you know uh, one and one a um, biographically, is his relationship with his agent Christy Walsh, who was for all intents and purposes, the first sports agent and the real model for Jerry Maguire of Hollywood fame. And um, their uh, relationship, their professional collaboration in making um, the uh, persona and building it up um, and and making money off of it, exploiting it for all it was worth, um, was uh, revolutionary. They created the template for how to be famous in America. And agents are still doing basically the same things that Walsh did for 
Ruth then, everything from product endorsements to, um, you know, uh, speaking engagements and uh, spin control and damage control. Uh, you know, the only thing Christy Walsh was not, not able to do for him that is such a big part of today's uh, agents is he wasn't allowed to negotiate a contract for Babe Ruth. He wasn't allowed to be in the room when he, you know, signed his deal annually with, uh, uh, with the Yankees or before that with the Red Sox. Uh, but he did try to coach him on how to do it. He did try to teach him about the art of leverage and, and uh, you know, trying to get more out of the Yankees. And those lessons were hard learned by the babe. Mm-hmm. What what made Walsh and Ruth work so well together? And how did their relationship sort of mutually benefit each other? Well, Walsh, you know, like everyone else in uh, 1920 and 1921, you know, after two years after Ruth came uh, to the Yankees, you know, wanted a part of Ruth. Everybody saw what, who and what he was. And Walsh was an out of work uh, PR guy and uh, marketing guy. He had done sports cartooning and some sports writing, but he had been fired more times than, you know, he wanted to admit. And in February, 1921, he came up with the great idea of uh, having a, a, a newspaper syndicate in which she would market ghostwritten uh, columns under the names of famous people. And originally he wanted to do movie people um, and opera singers and things, um, but uh, quickly realized that that market was already pretty crowded and that in addition, um, athletes offered a better, a better gig because you know, you could only make one or two movies a year, but baseball players played every day, and there was a World Series every year. So uh, he tried and failed to uh, get this attention, and finally, and this is a story told me by Christy Walsh's nephew, uh, finally one day in February, just before the Yankees were to take off for spring training, he climbed up the fire escape of the hotel he was staying in, cracked open the window, crawled through it, found Babe in bed with a blonde, slapped him on the butt and said, I want to represent you. <laughs> Great anecdote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's yeah. not the one Walsh wrote in his own um, uh, memoir, uh, a self-published memoir uh, that appeared in 1937 when he closed the syndicate. But he's a PR guy, you know, so... He's going to spin everything, and mm-hmm. uh, uh, I choose to believe his nephew. Yeah, hard to fathom why he wouldn't have included that. <laughs> um, because he had, he was a very conservative, cheap, um, teetotaling Irishman and and right wing Republican from um, Los Angeles. So he was, in some ways, as anomalous as as Babe Ruth was Mm -hmm. and his his um his parsimoniousness was you know was a salvation for Ruth who went through every dime he had and Walsh figured out a way to um literally crowbarred him into into saving money and saved him from utter ruin Mm -hmm. Early in the book, that you you write that Ruth became the first sports star to avail himself fully of the machinery of fame. 
Can you say a little bit about how he managed to do that and the effect it had on both Ruth himself and the public at large? Well, there was a, a constellation of events that were, um, you know, completely uh, solicitous for him. Uh, he comes to New York um, in January 1920, just as prohibition is becoming the law of the land. And six months after the New York Daily News, America's first tabloid went to print. Um, the Daily News created in November of 1919 the back page. The idea that sports was so important that you would give it its own front page on the back page. And Babe Ruth would continue to fill that back page with his exploits for the next 14 years. Um, at the same time, um, the, with the war being over um, and the military militarization of industry being over, uh, there was a need to figure out what to do with all those factories, and they went to work producing consumer goods that had to be sold. And the industries, the twin industries of public relations and marketing, and Madison Avenue came to life in uh, the early 20s in New York. And with all the techniques of how to make somebody buy that which they never knew they needed, um, you know, and all the new. Uh, gadgets that you could suddenly put in your house, you know, a refrigerator and a radio and a, and a toaster oven. And it would, with the idea of putting famous faces and famous names together with products um, to sell them with the, you know, the, the subconscious idea that you'll be like somebody famous if you use the same shaving cream, um, was the brainchild of Edward Bernays. Um, who happened to be Sigmund Freud's nephew and employed a lot of the same psychology in selling uh, things, objects, and uh, political campaigns and um, that is, you know, uncle did in, in psychoanalyzing people. How to, how to get at the unconscious desires of the population. Mm -hmm. What what was it about the 1920s as like an era that made it such a perfect time for Ruth to blossom as a celebrity? How would things have been different if he had reached his apex as an athlete a decade earlier or a decade later? Um, well, you know, he came to the Boston Red Sox in 1914. And fame at that point was, by and large, a local thing or an after-the-fact thing. Um, you know, you would get the results of the afternoon's game in the next day's paper in, in the perimeter of you know, the, whatever the newspaper circulation was. And that wasn't going to be very far because there weren't going to be that many available trucks and things to take newspapers from printing presses, you know, far outside the city where the thing was printed. So fame was local and there was no radio, you know, for the, when, when he came to the Red Sox in 1914. Um, so the advent of radio and the first game was uh, broadcast in 1921. It came from KDKA and in Pittsburgh, and then the beginning of covering uh, daily games, which um, really started uh, in Pittsburgh, and then Chicago owners were quick to avail themselves of the technology, whereas a lot of other owners, including those of the Yankees, were scared of it and thought that somehow um, if they, dilute, they were going to dilute their fan base by allowing people to hear a game and thinking, well, then they're not going to come. 
which was, of course, incredibly short-sighted. They didn't understand that advertising was going to explode and that there was money to be made um, by having people pay to sponsor the games. Um, it, you know, one of the huge turning points was in 27 when two new national radio networks, NBC and CBS, both um, carried the World Series live coast to coast. And then again, you know, in 1934, when the Ford Motor Company sponsored the first, uh, you know, World Series. And so he was, it was set up exactly at the right time for him. Uh, America was flush and feeling its oats and uh, everything was bigger than life. And he was synonymous with American clout and American excess. If he'd come a decade later in the middle of the Depression, um, there wouldn't have been the money to, uh, to you know, spend on shaving cream endorsed by him. Mm-hmm. And there wouldn't have been as much money to, for the Yankees to pay him. And, um, you know, there would have been more serious things on people's minds. Mm-hmm. One, one, one thing I kind of felt that I picked up on throughout the book was there was almost a resentment, it seemed, from Major League Baseball and the Yankees themselves at Roots' success and outsized popularity. Where, where do you think that came from? Um, I'm not sure that I agree with you that they resented it. Um, okay. I think his, I think his teammates certainly, um, you know, were grateful at a time when, you know, a $5,000 salary was a big deal in baseball to get, um, you know, a world series check meant sometimes or often for a lot of players doubling their income for the year. Um, I think that the one person who very, uh, much resented his um, success and his, you know, the bigness of him was Kennesaw Mountain Landis, the commissioner, who, of course, was the first commissioner of baseball. And he was brought in largely because he was a federal judge and had a reputation for being um, righteously uh, ethical. Um, and baseball in the in the aftermath of the uh, White Sox scandal, uh, Black Sox scandal, as it were, um, needed to rehabilitate its reputation and needed a tough guy. And uh, Mountain Landis um, it certainly did think that Babe Ruth was too big to, for his britches, but it served his purpose um, to consolidate, you know, consolidating his power um, by setting Ruth up as a as a straw, a, a dummy. Um, to you know, show who was in control um, was very, very efficacious for him. And Ruth sort of walked into an ambush in 21 after the, the postseason when he insisted that he was going barnstorming just the way he did in 27. And players have been doing that for years as a way of making money in the offseason. How else were they going to make money other than by doing what they did best? And uh, Kennesaw Mountain Landis, who was under investigation himself because he refused to give up his seat on the federal court in in Chicago, um, you know, made a big deal out of Bay Ruth not adhering to a never before uh, enforced rule that said that if you are been on a World Series team, uh, you couldn't go barnstorming. And if you think about what they were saying, they were basically, again, saying, making the same argument that they made about radio just a couple of years later. They're saying, well, we're going to dilute our product 
if we allow people to see World Series players, they're not going to want to come to the ballpark, which was ridiculous. And um, and Babe Ruth knew it, and he said it. He, he said quite emphatically, I think we're doing something good for baseball. And he was much more visionary about how to grow the sport um, than, than Landis and the other owners were. And I think he'd be appalled at where baseball is today. Mm-hmm. And, and why do you think that Major League Baseball was so hesitant to embrace Ruth as a coach or anything else after his career was over? And what effect do you think it had on Ruth? Um, well, two things. There, starting at St. Mary's, he was um, labeled by the other young boys who are prone to such things. Um, with a racial epithet that was extremely ugly and was based simply on stereotype that he had a wide nose and a, and big lips and was darkly complected. And he was darkly complected because he was outside all day playing baseball. Um, but that followed him through, through his major league career. And he was always heckled from dugouts um, about, whether his mother had crossed over and whether, uh, you know, about his racial makeup. And there's a famous story in 1922 World Series where there was a guy on the Giants bench. It's the last World Series played by the Yankees and the Giants when they were co-tenants at the Polo Grounds. And Ruth storms into the Giants locker room after a, a particularly lousy game and, you know, says something quite, well, you know, probably shouldn't repeat it. You can call me a this and you can call me a that. Just don't get personal. Um, you know, and that's the only time on record I could find that he responded to the racial heckling. But, you know, base, baseball and dugouts are not for sissies. And, you know, they were going to do anything they could to get him off his game, including upsetting him, distracting him at the plate. And that's what it was about. But I think that those rumors... Um, followed him all the way through his career. Um, people made a big deal of it when he extolled the virtues of Negro League players um, in 33. And his daughter, Julia, believes, though I don't agree with her on this, uh, that he was not allowed to manage because owners thought he would bring African-American players onto his team. Now, that doesn't make sense to me because there's no field manager who, unless he was also the general manager and owner who would have had the power to do that. Mm -hmm. But I do think that the belief that he had changed the salary structure in major league baseball, which he hadn't. um, And the belief that he might have been passing um, and the, all the coded language of racial prejudice that was applied to him, uh, that he was somehow an animal and that he had no control over his appetites. Um, I think that may have worked against him. Mm-hmm. And yet in spite of that, he was able to retain the love of the public throughout all his foibles and misdeeds over the years. H- how was he able to do that? Well, I think, you know, who wouldn't want to be able to pick up a 54 ounce bat and hit a ball over the over the outfield wall. There was an audacity to him. He was an inadvertent revolutionary, and he 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 extended and and redefined notions of what was possible. 
And those kind of, you know, human beings come along in science and literature and sports, sports that's easily understood and visible. And here was a guy who took the game out of the hands of the micromanagers like Giants manager John McGraw, who moved players about the bases like chess pieces, you know, with slap hitting and bunting and hitting the other way and said, well, this is ridiculous. Why should I do that when I can, you know, take one swing and, and, and end this game? And uh, in so doing, he literally remade the game in his own image. He's he created power baseball as we know it today. Mm-hmm. And it's now been over 70 years since Ruth died, yet he remains as mythical as ever a difficulty that you seem to wrestle with in your own book. Why does it remain so hard to find the man behind the public figure all these years later? Well, I, again, I, I think that the the mores of, of print journalism and sports writing as it existed in the 20s, which you know is often referred to as the golden era of sports, it was also the golden era of newspapers. And the the amount of coverage for sports you know exploded then and um and the ability to photograph um somebody like ruth in action and to show where the ball went you know both at newsreels um which became talkies by 27 um and in action photography that you know with cameras and um invented by the daily news staffers um, meant that you could see somebody and you could, the radio enabled you to hear what he had done and he became a part of the family almost through radio. Um, and he really was magical. He would, he would talk about, you know, uh, one of his first radio appearances, I'm coming to you through the ether. Imagine how that must have felt to hear, you know, when, hear somebody, you know, who's like a thousand miles away. That must have been extraordinary and it and it added to the sense that he was magical mm-hmm. and and to wrap up i just want to ask a, a few questions i like to ask every guest um first off what are you currently reading i'm reading michelle obama's book mm-hmm. and um what did i just finish uh boy oh boy oh boy oh boy oh boy I don't, it'll come back to me i'm reading michelle obama's book which is <laughs> fabulous Mm-hmm. And if you could recommend any book to everybody listening today besides your own, what would it be? Whew. Oh, man. Maybe E.B. White on the English language. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think um, the ability to write and the importance of being able to write and to convey in words something that you yourself um, or not present to see, hear, feel, smell um, has been lost along with the uh, ability and the interest in reading. And I think when you lose that, you lose a kind of empathy. And um, uh, I think the loss of empathy may have something to do with uh, the cruelness um, and lack of civility in the current age. And what is your earliest sports memory? Wow. Um, my dad took my sister, who hates everything sports, to a game at the um, at Ebbets Field 
uh, the Dodgers last year in Brooklyn, which would have been 1957. And I, of course, was the tomboy in the family and dying to go, but I was ruled too young to be able to sit through um, a whole ball game. So they brought me back a Dodgers hat, um, but it was a Dodgers hat made for girls. So it didn't have the classic baseball brim and it didn't have the shape of a, of a typical baseball cap. And it was girly and it had little white inset panels, you know, between the panels of royal blue. And I took it and stomped on my feet, stomped it with my feet in the backyard and never put it on. <laughs> and it actually happened to be a game that Sandy Koufax pitched in, which oh. would have been really great. Yeah, that's that's fitting considering your, your first biography. <laughs> right, exactly. It would have been nice, but, yeah. you know, what the hell. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that that might be my first memory. Also, my dad was a my dad actually was a water boy for the New York Football Giants at the Polo Grounds in in 1927, um, and I'm sure I heard tell of that. And when I was very young, um, my grandmother lived a block from Yankee Stadium, the old one, the real one, mm-hmm. and you could hear the echo of and the thunderous applause from the stadium outside her parlor window and you could hear the thwack of a bat sometimes and um, you could always tell from the traffic, you know, who was playing and when they were playing. Um, and I, that certainly seeped in. Um, it, it, uh, it's sort of a, a narration that, you know, uh, occupied a special place in my childhood. Mm-hmm. And, and what's the first thing that you remember writing? Um, I know that in fifth grade, I had to write a a state report on Alabama, which was probably right in the middle of the early civil rights movement. And then I had to write a country report on Columbia, which I misspelled. Um, (laughs) And my dog ate it up. Um, That's really true. The dog ate it up. Um, I think in sixth grade, I had a teacher who made us do these, you know, just suppose stories. So just suppose the sun was solid. I remember that one. How what, what would the world be like if the sun was solid? If sun, actually, she meant sunshine, but if the sun was solid. Mm-hmm. And finally, if you could give your younger writing self any piece of advice, what would it be? Don't do it. Read, of course, but um, look for images, write things down that you see that stick in your mind's eye. When I teach uh, writing, as I've done with kids of variety of different ages, I always find different metaphors to describe what writing is like. So with really little kids, I might say it's kind of like a recipe. Um, and you have to have a uh, an, an appetizer, and then you have to have a the real you know main course, and then you have to sum it up with a dessert, um, and you have to use spices, which are adjectives and adverbs, um, you know, judiciously because if you put too much hot chili pepper in something, nobody's going to be able to. Everybody's just going to gag on it, and, you know, walk away. Um, later kids, I would always 
give them an example or I'd say, okay, tell me what color the sky is. Okay, it's blue. Well, what kind of blue? Yeah, well, bright blue. No, that doesn't really say anything. You need something specific. You need an image that you can feel. Mm -hmm. So I would always say, you know, uh, the sky was the color of my grandmother's eyes on the day she died because everybody knows or at a certain point, everybody knows that right before somebody dies, um, there's a, usually a moment or a little bit of time where somebody rallies and there's a, the intensity of just the pre-death experience and um, your, your eyes might get very bright. So I, I always tell people, read Joan Didion. She's brilliant. Um, she does that better than anybody I know. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, if you want to write about sports, read Red Smith, my, men- my mentor, Red Smith. Mm-hmm. Well, Jane, I want to thank you so much for coming on Pros and Pros today. I-, I really enjoyed the book, and I enjoyed talking to you as well. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to do it. Thank you for listening to the Pros and Pros podcast. Stay tuned for many more exciting guests in the near future. And in the interim, please subscribe and leave a positive review if you've enjoyed the show. You can also follow us on both Twitter and Instagram at Pros and Pros. I'm Michael Wimmer. Happy reading, everyone.